Hello and welcome to Governance Uncovered, a podcast brought to you by the Programme on Governance and Local Development, supported by the Swedish Research Council. Hosting this show is GLD's founding director, Ellen Lust. And joining her today are two fellow researchers from the Department of Political Science at the University of Gothenburg, Marsha Grimes and Agnes Cornell. Marsha and Agnes are both researchers at the Quality of Government Institute, a neighboring research institute to GLD that addresses the theoretical and empirical problem of how political institutions of high quality can be created and maintained. Marsha's research interests include the role of civil society in combating corruption, both in terms of contributing to societal accountability and advocacy efforts to bring about legal and institutional change. Her most recent work appears in the Oxford Handbook of the Quality of Government, of which she is also a co-editor. Agnes' main research interests is the intersection between state bureaucracy and the functioning of democracy, political institutions and citizen interactions with the state. Her work has been published in journals and presses such as Oxford University Press, the Journal of Politics, Comparative Political Studies, Governance and the Journal of Peace Research. In this episode, Marcia, Agnes and Ellen will be discussing clientelism and specifically Marcia and Agnes's paper, Brokering Bureaucrats, how bureaucrats and civil society facilitate clientelism where parties are weak, which focuses on bureaucrats and how their links to civil society can shape clientelism in Peru. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. And if you do, please like, share and subscribe to our channel. So Agnes and Marcia, thank you for joining us today. I'm excited to talk about your paper and your work that's looking really at how bureaucrats can be engaged in what we think of as clientelism and engaged in politics in ways that we might not normally expect. So I wanted to begin simply by asking you to explain to everybody what clientelism is, since that's a big focus of your work in, in this paper and also other work. Right. Well, first of all, thanks for having us. It's a really it's a pleasure to be here and to talk about our work with you. So clientelism is whenever parties or candidates use targeted benefits to, to win votes. So rather than having a policy platform and promising to accomplish certain things, if they're elected, we're talking about it could either be just really one shot, shot benefits, like anything from kerosene to a t-shirt or something like that, or car tires, we've heard. But it could also be access to some sort of scholarship program for a voter's children. So it could be access to, to public programs and public goods and, and entitlements, but it becomes contingent on the voter voting for that specific party. So that's what distinguishes clientelism from just saying, if you vote for us, we'll expand scholarship programs. That would be a programmatic promise. But here we're talking about you can get access to a program if you vote for this specific candidate. So it's selective and it's you can be excluded from it and it's very targeted. Yeah. That's kind of the And it's not only necessarily voting, but it can also be other types of show of political support, like going to a protest or manifestation in pro in the campaigning phase, for example. So so also the scope of political support that you can show in order to get these benefits could be quite broad. Well. And do these benefits come only at the time of voting or at the time of going to the campaigns? Or are these, do they come before, do they come after? How do we understand sort of the relationship between the timing of me giving you something and the support that I'm showing? 
Yeah, so I would say so the more recent work is starting to show that, and that might be a way to distinguish it from vote buying. Vote buying might be something that would happen among people waiting in line to actually vote at the polling station, that sort of thing. Whereas clientelism often requires a more continuous nurturing. That's where we talk about maybe relational clientelism as opposed to just one-shot kind of transactions, where voters have to come to trust either the candidate or the party or a broker. There's often a middleman. And the parties then also have to start trusting in some sense that the voters will, in fact, follow up and go to the rally and vote for the, for the promised candidate. Of course, the voting booth is perhaps the, kind of the flashpoint of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it is something that can go on in a longer campaign period and even between elections, I would say. Yeah, and there can be very long-term linkages between these brokers and citizens. Yeah, so I think we would define vote buying as one aspect of clientelism, but not all of it. That is quite a broad concept. But uh... And some of the more well-studied examples, like the Peronist Party in, in Argentina, there are sociological studies that really show that the social relationships are, are quite stable. And these also help to reinforce party loyalty and a more identity-based bonds between voters and parties. And those have to be, I think, continuously. Yeah, and, uh, and, and those are like networks that are very important for these citizens in order to to survive almost in, in poor neighborhoods sometimes. So they use these networks in order to get what they, what they need for their daily <laughs> survival. So we'll come in a second to how you think about bureaucrats as being able to play this kind of brokerage role, right? And how that might be different for bureaucrats than for other brokers. But maybe we can start by thinking about what brokers are and what do we know about brokers in classical Argentinian examples or in other examples. Who are brokers? How do they relate to parties and, and what do we know about them? Yeah, I mean, so in the classical take, I think they they are many times party agents. So they represent clearly a political party and they work very locally, like a local base unit in which their party is represented, where they, so they have quite a, like a strong role sometimes in the community, but they are at the same time party representatives. And they, they work at the, at the local organizational unit. They have, sometimes they even have like their own office where they work, where people can come to and ask for help. So it becomes like, a, like an important unit in the community in which they broker citizens. That said, there is both in, in yeah. some of the very early work on clientelism and patronage an awareness that brokers can have different kinds of roles and they can be extremely tied to their own patron, a, a party mm-hmm. or a landowner. Um, but they can also, if they have their own resources and they govern over those resources or have control of those resources, they can be more autonomous. And so then they can, in some cases, even negotiate with their patron for a better position or even maybe negotiate with different patrons mm-hmm. if they're competing patrons. So we know that from the sort of the early work of James C. Scott. And then there's also more recent, a few recent studies that also, again, have come back to this and shown that there's a lot of variation in, in yeah. brokers, that it, sometimes it can be heads of associations like community-based organization or a neighborhood association mm. can act as a broker and liaise with parties during election times. And that you can have just completely unaffiliated people who just are good at connecting people with people who who might, in a temporary way, 
talk to a head of an association and say, hey, if you can get your members to vote for this candidate, then I can go to the candidate and and see what I can get for you. Almost an entrepreneur Mm -hmm. in a sense, right? Very autonomous person. So there's two then concepts I think that's useful to to kind of distinguish. One, One being the, and you've sort of mentioned this, right, but the difference between constituent services when you're describing a person who's in an office and connected to a party, you could say, okay, we know that, right? You have a constituency service kind of representative who's able to, to negotiate with them, right? Mm-hmm. So to think first a little bit about that distinction between just constituent service. And it seems to me, Marcia, that you started by saying that this is not about, I'm just serving everybody in terms of policy program, right? It's not a, a policy is it also fair to say that these are people who keep track of who are the supporters and who aren't the supporters? And so even when they have this office in the locality, they're helping those who have shown themselves to be loyal and not yeah, helping? Yeah, and also, and also that those people that go to these offices, they know that they need to give something in return for these benefits. Right. Which gets back to this sort they of this kind of long-term de- Yeah, so they can not only demand things, but they... They know that there is a reciprocal relationship here that they need to uphold okay. in, to get things in the in the future. And of course, there there I think there are blurry. There's some blurry zones on either end of the concept. Yeah. So I mean, there are also examples of of parties that open temporary health clinics in neighborhoods. I think in Chile it was that I that I read about, and you could think that that's an odd way of campaigning, maybe, and and it smacks of clientelism a bit. But if they don't, then really have the follow up to monitor and and one account from Argentina, the broker, the locally embedded broker knew the people in the neighborhood well enough that they could walk around the next day and look everybody in the eyes and and would immediately know whether or not they followed up on their promise to vote for that given party. And so that's, it's the monitoring Mm -hmm. of voters and and Mm -hmm. actual voting behavior Mm -hmm. when it becomes clearly Mm -hmm. a case of clientelism. Um, And I also think that in those classical accounts, the broker also makes it very clear that they what they get there is something that they get because they are privileged to some extent. So that's an, also an important role of the broker is to gatekeep the resources. So yeah. they so they provide leverage. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So that they these are resources that you can only get from me, right. and you will get them right. Yeah. And sometimes it's not correct. I mean, that's what the PRI in Mexico did for decades. Was the the party colors were the same as the Mexican national colors, but they sometimes would just imply that the party would imply that if you vote for us, you get you get to be included in this social welfare program, when in fact, it might have been programmatic. So sometimes there's, and that's again, maybe more in a gray zone, but yeah, the most effective clientelism is when you actually can exclude voters if you, mm-hmm. if you suspect they aren't holding up their end of the bargain. So that makes sense. Then the other sort of concept I think that we want to distinguish between, though, is is interest groups, right? So when you're talking about I'm an association leader and I have my own networks and I have my own ability to play off different parties against each other, right? Or to, in a sense, kind of sell my block to the highest bidder, right? You can think of unions as doing something quite similarly. They can say, okay, we can throw our support behind a candidate who's willing to go and make these claims or make the promises in the future. So what's the difference between an interest group and these kind of more independent brokers that you're talking about? I mean, I would say that it's a matter of scale. And also, if the interest group fights for a minimum wage, for example, in the automobile sector, but even non-union members would then benefit from it, 
then you have a free rider plot problem in the union, but it's still programmatic because they're working for the benefit of everybody in a category. If you meet these criteria, then, then you're included and you have access to the entitlement. Then it's of a more programmatic nature, even if it came about through the efforts of an interest group. But if the union negotiates benefits and, and you have to be a member of the union and you're expected to support a specific party fairly explicitly, then, then it, you know, it starts to glide over into the direction yeah. of... Yeah, and I think your point that these are not sort of such clear-cut boundaries, right, is a really important one. It's not that we can say, okay, well, that's clearly clientelistic and that's not, right? I mean, there's a lot of also recent work that's saying that often when we think that this is an exchange, that there's not much evidence of the exchange part of it. But what I think that is exciting about your work is that you're turning our attention away from these kinds of free agents and the association leaders per se, and you're actually helping us to look inside bureaucracies. So I want to hear a little bit more about why you think in this particular case that bureaucrats play an important role and how and why can they play the same kind of role we're talking about if we're talking about association leaders or, or party agents. Yeah, so that's kind of the core of our research agenda right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, so so I think we we look into the, the public administration research literature and uh, we think that it's quite a good way of incorporating some of the knowledge that we have from that literature and on what bureaucrats actually do and how politicians also try to control bureaucrats, but they always... Bureaucrats always have some degree of dis discretionary power, and we believe that in certain contexts, bureaucrats can actually use this discretionary power to actually act as brokers, but bureaucrats also need some kind of assets to be able to do so. I mean, they always have some degree of discretionary power. They can, they can take some decisions independently of, of politicians, and politicians won't be able to control all the decisions that bureaucrats make, right? But certain bureaucrats will have assets that are more valuable for politicians, such as connections to civil society organizations. And especially when parties are weak, since most previous research or the, like the classical literature that we talked about before, for example, take for granted that there are these quite strong parties that are actually present in the locality that ha have these local offices that we talked about and so on. And in other contexts, parties are extremely weak. And that is something that is being now more and more actually also researched about in, in other research as well. But we think then that bureaucrats can actually play an even more important role when, when parties are weak, since then politicians are weaker since the chances that their party will be re-elected is much lower since weak parties means that um, there is more of turnover among parties, electoral volatility, and also that these bureaucrats are more likely to have an experience that is longer than these politicians then because parties are weaker and also they cannot really build these clientelistic networks to the same extent. So they need to find other people to build these clientelistic networks around. Yeah, I mean, as Agnes said, our thinking has been directed at contexts where parties are weak, and that became kind of a, a puzzle for us because there is research showing that bureaucrats and civil servants do behave as brokers, but that usually is in systems where parties are very stable and very strong. So again, the example of Argentina, a lot of bureaucrats have their jobs through patronage appointments, 
and they're very loyal to the party. And then when, as ca- the campaign season begins, but as I said before, it can be any time, they behave almost mostly in the interest of the party, mm-hmm. and that's their first concern. And so they help people they know that support the party, or maybe their efforts are targeted towards mm-hmm. swing voters or people who are are hesitant to vote. You know, they, so it's it, there's always a political logic to how they carry out their citizen services. So it becomes constituency service, even though on paper their job says, mm-hmm. of course, that they're supposed to be helping residents, citizens. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of sort of the classic thinking, and we've written a few papers on that before about when. A lot of civil servants are politically appointed. You see higher rates of clientelism, and and you're more likely to see the symptoms of clientelism. But then we had this project on Peru, and very striking feature of Peru, although it's really not that exceptional in the Latin American context or in a global context, there are very weak parties. But that's that exists elsewhere. And then our puzzle became like, well, how can we understand that? Why might bureaucrats play this role even when parties are so weak? So they don't have that loyalty that's driving their behavior, and they don't even really have the self-interest because if they're very tied to a party, then they're incentivized to broker because if their party loses, then they would lose their job. Mm. But that doesn't really kick in either if parties are, I mean, we're literally talking, they don't survive, they they survive the election, but then the party disbands. That's how weak they are at the local and regional level in Peru. Many parties are, Mm. at least they're fluid, they're very fluid. But we still think that, as as Agnes was saying, that they might actually be more well-placed to engage as brokers Mm. in those kinds of settings because the parties never have time to build the base units, they never can nurture these these loyalty bonds. Um, so the bureaucrats yeah. have access to state resources, but they also have time to nurture relationships with citizens and, and civil society leaders. And then the politicians, one strategy that they can use, or candidates, is to turn to these bureaucrats and say, hmm, you have the connections to voters. Mm-hmm. And in the proving context, the, the politicians still have the opportunity to promote bureaucrats so they still have control over their careers even though they can't always fire them but they can make them yeah they can fire some bureaucrats but not all of them so that's um, yeah so we we actually think that bureaucrats can actually use their kind of autonomous role here to broker and especially so if they have connections that they can use as an asset in relation like civil society connections that they can use as an asset in relation to politicians So are you also then pointing out to two different ways in which bureaucrats are working, right? Because if I hear the pre in the Mexico example, then bureaucrats may be out mobilizing voters, but they're sort of doing it almost under duress, right? I mean, they don't have much choice. They're going to be mobilizing voters for the pre, and that's going to be the the kind of the end of it for Mm -hmm. them, right? It seems to me in the Peruvian case, we have bureaucrats who are able essentially, yes, they they may want to have upward mobility and they want to be able to get promoted and they might Mm -hmm. be dependent on politicians Mm -hmm. to some extent for that. But it also seems like there's a lot more latitude of them being able to say, I can deliver for you and not necessarily worry that they know you're going to be in power next time or they know if your opponent's going to be in power next time and therefore they're dependent on them, right? So is it a very different, I mean, not just that they play this role because parties are weak, but they play it in a very different way than they do exactly. with Mexico? Yeah. Exactly. Yes. So we think in, in these more where parties are stronger, they either do it under duress or, as Virginia Oliveros has suggested, they do it because their fates are interdependent. But we think that there might be other things going on, um, especially where parties are weak. And yeah, that is, as you said. and that the fates are not necessarily interdependent in this case, since the bureaucrats might not lose their jobs always, even though the incumbent loses power. And therefore, bureaucrats can also look for other politicians and support them that they think that have greater chances 
to win the next elections. So they can actually shop around a little bit among among politicians also. So that's quite a huge difference compared to to the other accounts yeah. of bureaucrats. You can imagine a hypothetical situation where a civil servant sees that the, I mean, and that's also actually statistically more likely to happen, that incumbents, incumbents don't get reelected, as you said before, when parties are very weak. So civil servants probably know this. And so they think, well, either I'll do what the incumbent asked me to do and try to mobilize votes for him or her, but I really don't think this person is going to win. So then they have control over a lot of the resources because they, they're the gatekeeper to some of these resources. And there, as you said, just in that hypothetical situation, this bureaucrat might see another candidate that seems much more viable and turn to that person and say, well, I can broker for you. I can deliver a bunch of votes mm-hmm. through these my connections. And then maybe what, if you win the election, then you'll remember that. Even if they can't get fired, as you said, that they can, they can be transferred, they can be promoted. Their salaries can be affected to some extent. So politicians still have a great deal of influence over bureaucrats' career trajectories Mm. and salary prospects. So they have incentives to do it, even Mm. if they can't be fired, which they can't. They have protected tenures. At least, uh, yeah, not all of them, but Mm -hmm. many, many of them have. And also our results show that there doesn't seem to be any difference between those that have secure tenure and those that don't. Yeah, I actually found that quite striking. I mean, again, because it sort of hints to the idea that these bureaucrats have quite a bit of power. And, and that wasn't mm. where I started. My starting assumption was not, okay, they're going to be brokers and with brokers, mm. in a sense, kind of with some degree of latitude, right? That it's going mm. to be in the, in the case where they're kind of stuck exactly. mobilizing in a ways that mm. we see in other kinds of contexts. Mm. The other thing that you point to, though, that does make a difference, right, is the relations between bureaucrats and civil society. Can say, you say a little bit more about what those relationships look like and then why they matter? Yeah, so what we do, we did a survey of civil servants at the, at the regional level in Peru, and uh, we wanted to map their brokering behavior and then see if we could see patterns and who, who exhibits, which bureaucrats exhibit this bro- brokering behavior. And by brokering behavior, we had two indicators. One was whether or not they had been active in the previous campaign, both to mobilize voters to get them to vote, but also we asked questions about if they tried to influence vote choice, which is something that bureaucrats in many countries are actually prevented from doing. <laughs> So it's not entirely unproblematic, um, but but it's not it's not illegal and they can't do it on paid work time, but they can do it in Peru. So we think we got pretty good um, answers on those questions. So if they do that, they mobilize voters and try to influence vote choice, but also if they've fielded requests from citizens and civil society organizations for help, so mm-hmm. special requests for targeted help, assistance and problem mm-hmm. solving. So do bureaucrats do these things and to what extent do they do these things? And then what we saw is, is that those who also said that they had connections to civil society organization, and that was a quite of a tough measure because we asked if they had worked at a civil society organization before becoming, assuming a job in the regional government. So those who had this kind of work experience were much more likely to do these two different kinds of brokering, possible brokering mm-hmm. behavior. And we see that as, as because to go out and individual, mobilize individual voters, that's one way to broker. But it's also quite time consuming. Mm-hmm. But if you can liaise with with heads of associations and those associations have 100 members or 100 vo- uh, members of voting age, then obviously mm-hmm. you've scaled up the whole thing. Yeah. And it can help with the uh, enforcement of voting vote, vote choice yeah. and, and behavior in the polls because the associational leaders know these people and, and those social connections can help in monitoring. Yeah, so that's also where we think that not all bureaucrats are equally able to actually broker. So mm-hmm. some bureaucrats have assets that are important, like, for example, connections to civil society, which can help them them to amass voters. 
And that will also give them more credibility when they go to politicians and offer their their support or help. And there are a few other studies that do show that at the on the voter level, people who are members of organizations, associations of different kinds, are more likely to have reported that they've been approached for vote buying. And we know that also people who are central and social networks are more likely to have exhibited voting uh, brokering behavior. So we, we know that associations and networks can sometimes be subsumed into these kinds of clientelistic exchanges. Mm-hmm. But I think ours is the first study that really focuses on the relationship between bureaucrats and civil society associations mm-hmm. is really trying to show that that can help to structure this otherwise quite high risk transactions. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of moral hazard on all parts. And so these stable relationships can help to shore up the credibility on all mm-hmm. in all yeah. parts of the transaction. So yeah. that's why we think that can be a node in this machinery. Is it a good node? I'm trying to think through this, right? Because on the one hand, the brokers seem to have, or the bureaucrats seem to have a lot more power than we might think of them as as having, right? And that's the wrong kind of power. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, and that's the question. I mean, it, it's almost a question of, you know, should we think of this as mobilization or should we think of it as clientelism? If you play off the politicians against each other or you have the power to play them off against each other, how do we think about that? I think we can see it as both things, really. I mean, it can be mobilization, right? I mean, civil society organizations can mobilize more people to vote. Mm -hmm. But the difference, I think, must then there, I think we must return to our definition of clientelism, that as soon as it becomes some kind of contingent relationship, Mm -hmm. then it's clientelist. And that's also a challenge, I think, we have in our paper, that it's quite hard to actually show that, that these are contingent relationships and so on. I mean, that's the theoretical difference, uh, which is important to note, I think. But yeah. Right. And is, to the extent that we would all hope that democracy would, over time, lead to the development of programmatic parties and, and programmatic thinking among citizens and, and the implementation of policies in a programmatic, impartial way, you know, to the extent that yeah. we think that that is institutional development and democratic deepening, then, of course, this is less than optimal. I mean, yes, if people go vote, that's a good thing. But if, they're, if they don't have much choice once they get in the polls, then that's it's not exactly what the normative ideal of democracy would hope for. So. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I also think that it's worth noting that, yes, it's hard to show in your paper the contingency of the relationship, right? But we did a, a review of the literature and Alan Hicken and his collaborator have as well. And, and, you know, basically most of the work on clientelism is not able to show that contingent relationship, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's, it's just a, yeah. it's a more pervasive problem yeah. in terms of just yeah. being able to show yeah. something that there's all sorts of reasons why people don't simply disclose it. I always tell my students that when you study things like corruption, you kind of have to describe the inside of a house, but you can only peek through a few windows. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you can never quite see the full in layout, but you can kind of, yeah. you know, puzzle together and, and think that if democracy mm. and policy implementation were working according to the normative ideal, we mm. wouldn't see these patterns. So it's always yeah, exactly. in relation to... Yeah, and it's also in relation to, for example, that we have these two different indicators, both voter mobilizations and citizens' requests, as you mentioned earlier, yeah. Marcia, that also show, I think, more clearly that these bureaucrats that have have been in touch with or have had contacts with civil society organizations, have been even working for civil society organizations, they have also been engaged in voter mobilization Mm. in the previous year. And they seem to have, they are also more likely to be approached by citizens for requests. So to show these two different faces of it, that both are incomplete uh, pictures, but together they 
they form a pattern. That's how we have argued, I think. Yeah, no, and I think you're in the paper very nicely clear about, you know, this is what we can show and this is the part that less obvious or less mm. clear. The other part of the picture, though, that you show is that it's not just about linkages between the bureaucrat and the associate uh, civil society, but it's also places where civil society is stronger that we see these relations operating more. Mm-hmm. Can you say a little bit more about why the nature of place matters as well as the nature of those linkages? Well, I think it really comes back to a lot of this idea of scaling up. So clientelism is, is, uh, requires organization, it requires resources, and it requires organization, but specifically connections. So without connections to mm-hmm. voters, then you can't really convince them to vote for a certain candidate mm-hmm. and they won't believe you if you promise to give them something. So there's a lot of trust. There's a lot of credibility mm-hmm. problems. And, uh, and associations help to structure that because they're more stable. You trust your associational leader. So if that leader forms a relationship with a bureaucrat, then it kind of helps to resolve some of those credibility issues. And if there are more citizens, more voters who are members of associations, then you quite simply mm-hmm. have a larger mm-hmm field to play in. There are more mm-hmm. points of contact, there are more organizations to liaise with, and so it makes the whole thing more viable. So our hypothesis was that, that these connections should matter for bureaucrats with civil society connections as well as those bureaucrats with political connections and party connections, but it turns out that the civil society strength actually only matters where for bureaucrats with political connections, so it's only there that we actually see that if uh, civil society is, is uh, sufficiently strong or having had previous political office, those bureaucrats are more likely to broker as well. But okay. those bureaucrats are not more likely to broker when we don't take into account the setting. But we actually expected this also to matter for civil society connections, but it doesn't for some yeah, reason. So yeah. we definitely see that brokers exhibit, brokers with connections to civil society seem to exhibit broken behavior. But we also looked at if bureaucrats have connections to parties, um, and that was a self-reported one, or if they'd held office before, which we saw as as an indication that they have political connections. And of course that matters. I mean, we're not saying that parties or that politics are are absent. It's just that parties are not stable. And so, yeah, as you said, that where where civil society organizations are are stronger, that's where we see the bureaucrats with political, political connections, connections that yeah. that kicks in more and matters more and and there we're out in an interpretive <laughs> terrain yeah. because it's you know we'll have to do more research to get and get back to you on that <laughs> yeah. but the, the thinking is that where civil society is stronger then they might be able to target even these higher up bureaucrats and those mm-hmm. are the ones that are more likely to have held office before that's when it might really assume even a grander scale and they mm. might be demanding things like yeah. not just a borehole in their neighborhood, mm. but they might be demanding a new a refurbishment of of the plaza, you know, right. in their village. Or, you know, mm. So that's when civil society yeah. might actually be able to go to the, to, to the higher echelons of the bureaucracy and say like, hey, we can we can maybe exchange a thousand votes if you if you help us mm. with our if our very local needs here. So this question, too, about what are the demands that get made would be a great next step and maybe you're already doing that next step you, you're both laughing so tell me about it <laughs> our yeah. coming project yeah. Yeah. yeah i mean we, we will continue to work on peru and peru has been very hard hit by i mean it's the country with the most deaths per capita, per capita um, from covid so the whole project yeah. has been postponed but the plan is which seems now like we can move ahead is to look at exactly what kinds of demands civil society associations make and when mm-hmm. we say civil society associations some people immediately think of chapter of transparency international or something that we already 
assume are working for institutional development, but we have a, a broader definition and it can include the neighborhood associations or associations of cattle herders. I mean, it is a very rich associational landscape in Peru and they can make different kinds of demands. And so sometimes they do behave in the way that we sometimes think that civil society associations should behave, where they report corruption or they make complaints about public goods and services, or they, they report teacher absenteeism in their children's yeah. schools, those kinds of things that we we think of as good. As good, yeah. yeah the yeah. civil civil society. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but we also know, not just from our own research, but from other studies, that, that associations will negotiate for goods that only benefit their very local members or can just be, like I said, kerosene or something mm. that's very one-shot. It really doesn't mm. lead to any sort of addressing the underlying issues of poverty or marginalization. And so we know they make both, both of those kinds of requests, but we don't really know when they'd be more likely to do the one or the other. Yeah. And so we're hoping in our next project to kind of see that. And, yeah. and again, re- relating this to our larger research agenda, we think it might relate to how much bureaucrats are politically either appointed or that their, con- yeah. their careers can be controlled. So it has to do with the civil service reform and public administration that we think can matter for mm-hmm. also how not just voters, but citizens more generally and civil society associations mm-hmm. engage with the state, that it kind yeah. of changes the whole logic mm-hmm. of political involvement. And there you could also relate to some previous research that mostly focuses on on the different tactics that civil society takes. Civil society is more likely to take like non-institutional yeah. or use non-institutional Strategy. participations or strategies like going out to, to the streets instead of contacting a, a politician or or go through more formal channels. But in our project, we, we try to make a distinction between the tactics and the claim making, right? So that's also, an, uh, I think, one of the contributions that we can hopefully make in this project. And what we are planning to do is uh, to try to do some experiments on uh, civil society organizations or leaders of civil society organizations in Peru. Um, Are you also going to look at the opposite? So the, when we've talked about the bureaucrats, we think about the bureaucrats sort of reaching out to civil society. Is there a sense in which we think that that direction almost goes the opposite way, that civil society reaches to bureaucrats to try to like, mobilize, to try to sort of use resources in different ways? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I'm enough of an institutionalist that I believe the fish rots from the head down. <laughs> the institutions are very permeated with the logic of particularism and and. Mm-hmm. There's not a whole lot of impartiality in how decisions are made, but it's it's the bureaucrats that are playing the political game. They get better positions, and then they play the you know then they use the state resources for political ends, that sort of thing. Then I think if that is kind of the norm in in yeah, how it works, yeah. then I do think that citizens will figure out pretty quickly that that's the best way mm-hmm. to get access to resources. That's the best mm-hmm. way to get you know some people their accounts of voters in in low income areas saying that elections are the only time we get anything from the state. Yeah. So I mean. We don't fault anybody for choosing those strategies, but they do yeah. go looking for yeah. particularistic benefits. And why wouldn't they? But I think we often don't think necessarily of civil society associations and leaders doing that, right? I mean, we think of that as being what citizens do. We, you know, it'd be nice to be able to understand how mm. more about how they see those yeah. options. So that, that's uh, like what we aim at, that we don't think the civil society at organizations they don't act in a vacuum they yeah. are also part of an institutional setting and they are acting in an institutional environment right it's been shown a little bit in corruption voting that where there is a lot of corruption and clientelism then citizens may feel implicated or that it's difficult for them to also i mean they're not in a vacuum either so if you've 
sold your vote, basically, then people are not, you know, psychologically, they might find it difficult to, to punish the corrupt incumbent yeah. because they're kind of part of the system then. And, uh, and we think it might be something like that here, that there might be a trade-off, mm -hmm. that when civil society or associations have already begun to engage in these particularistic exchanges, mm -hmm. they might be disinclined to report any observed problems to the ombudsman, for example, or to take more programmatic accountability actions. I mean, one thing we'd like to do is just map what kind of claims they make and see if there is kind of an either-or story. It could be also mm -hmm. that associations do both, that they both report mm -hmm. problems that they see yeah. and, and try to bring about accountability when, when they witness corruption. But it could be that once they've engaged in more particularistic behaviors, that they abstain from those because, yeah, again, there's a little bit yeah. of a cognitive dissonance problem there. Yeah, not to mention, and to some extent, they've actually benefited from the fact that things might yeah. not be as transparent, right? I mean, that exactly. yeah. also becomes a bit of a problem. You know problem. that game, yeah. too. So why? Yep. Yeah. You don't know it's a you game get. you know how to play. Mm -hmm. And so you... You know, and, you, and you're right. I mean, there's some experimental evidence that shows that people, when they feel like essentially their vote has been bought effectively, that they don't actually have the same sets of demands as, mm. as otherwise. So exactly. it's, um, yeah. No, and it's great because I think that you're, in your work, you're shedding light both on the bureaucracy, right? But in the sense that it, it reflects back in thinking about civil society and how those two fit together at different points in time. I mean, you mentioned, you know, we have people who had been held political office earlier and bureaucracy, right? And we have people who had been in associations, working in associations earlier. Is it in, in Peru, are they able to do both at the same time? Do we have people who are simultaneously yeah. leaders or working in the civil society and in the bureaucracy? Yes, I think so. I mean, it, at least in our survey, we, we can also see that if you have all three connections if you are a party member, if you have political connections from before, like having mm -hmm. a political office and you have been a member of a civil society, then you are actually even more likely or like the, the predicted value, at least <laughs> on our voting voter mobilization index is much higher for those that have all three okay, connections. Okay. So it's clear that at least our prediction is that that they are more likely to have been brokers, at least in voter mobilization. So, but those uh, connections that we, as we measure them, are, are more historical. So they yeah, have yeah. worked in civil society yeah. organizations. Whether or not they can do both at the same time, I don't. We we, we can't see that in in your data. In no, yeah. we don't. No, really know, or no. We determine yeah. that. I can't imagine that it would be that there would be anything that would prevent them from doing that. I mean, if yeah. you're in your free time, you run an organization. Then I think that that's freedom of association. So I can't imagine yeah. that. I think my my hypothesis would be that. These people, they jump around quite mm -hmm. a lot between different types of organizations. There's a lot of fluidity. Yeah, yeah. in the system overall. Yeah. And uh, some might even be like some kind of more autonomous entrepreneurs that, that choose yeah. the, the organization that fits them best in that particular moment and so on. So, so I think there is yeah. a fluidity in, in this, yeah. yeah. According mm. to our argument, those if they actually are still involved yeah. in a civil society association, of course, they're even more well-placed yeah. yep. to brokers. Yeah. So but we definitely have people that have experience, at least, of all these free. And at some point, it would be also, I think, interesting to think about separating the connections part of it from the resources part of it. And I guess almost from the entrepreneurial part, right? So we have a sense in which you, know, you can, can have people who are doing all three of these, not because it's the the combination of the three that matter, but somehow that's their type, right? They're mm. just super engaged and super energetic. And and they may be doing something not because of the sets of resources or networks, but just because kind of that's who they are, right? Mm. And then 
thinking about how the resources matter and how the the connections themselves matter. I mean, we know from research on public administration that all bureaucrats have discretionary power, even where they have rather sort of frontline kinds of jobs. So maybe they could control fewer resources. You know, their discretionary power maybe can't be that useful in terms of gaining votes. And even where politicians have a great deal of influence over even firing, firing, bureaucrats still have discretionary power. But what you're talking about, it would be interesting to see if those bureaucrats, I mean, bureaucrats do have different levels of discretionary power and over different amounts of resources. And that's not something we can really map in our data. But that would be an interesting way forward to see if bureaucrats, and one would guess that a bureaucrat that wants to play that kind of game and be a broker and advance their career because they can get labor mm-hmm. leverage with politicians, that they would seek out those kinds of positions too. So it would be interesting to see. Where they have access to resources that they can. That matter mm-hmm. a lot. Right. Yeah. And there yeah. is some work that shows that it's like the, the bureaucrats in the housing sector are more likely to engage as as, as brokers. So, I mean, there are sectors where they where you have those kind of resources yeah. that are extremely valuable for voters. Yeah. And so that would be the expectation there. But that might be in our next next project. We'll <laughs> <laughs> You have a, an entire sort of career of work laid out in front of you, agenda, yes. yeah. <laughs> which is great. And are there other things with thinking about either research agendas or messages that you think that come out of the work that you want to make sure that that we're all aware of? I mean, so, we started on this path, uh, really feeling that the public administration was largely ignored, except for things like the ombudsman or access to information laws, which are Mm -hmm. kind of, I mean, they're relevant, obviously, both for democracy and democratic accountability, but also how public administrations function. But there's so many other features of the public administration that we think matter for how citizens engage politically. We sort of started in in that broad field of inquiry and Mm -hmm. kind of narrowed it down to political influence over bureaucrats' careers. But in general, it feels like there's still a, a too hard of a division in, in political science and the study of mm-hmm. democracy, democratic deepening. And there's very little attention paid to how, how the state is structured and how mm-hmm. the public administration is organized. And, and, and there are attempts to reform civil service. World Bank and lots of other powerful policy actors have made those attempts. And we're aware of the fact that it's not, it's not been ignored. Um, but I think if one can show that, that it matters also for how citizens engage politically, yeah. there might be yet another argument for really making an effort to protect the bureaucracy from, from that kind of influence. And, mm. Yeah, mm-hmm. from political interference. No, it's true. You're right. I mean, the sort of people working on political behavior and participation rarely pay very much attention at all to public administration and the bureaucracy. And, and the, vice versa. Yeah, and vice versa. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. This is super fascinating work and all of the best in the in the much work ahead. Thank so. you very much for all your great questions yeah. and for pushing us. Thanks to think a about. lot. Yeah. It was Thanks very a lot. enjoyable. Thank you. Thank you.